Back in the early YouTube days, I came across a delightful fellow named Mr. Shy City. His first video was posted on April 14th, 2008, less than three years after the Me at the Zoo video was uploaded to YouTube. That one is riveting stuff. And it's not me at the zoo. That's the title of the video is me at the zoo. And it's the very first video that was ever posted on YouTube. Now, Mr. Shy City has a lot of silly videos. The one I first watched was about how stocking your refrigerator with the proper drinks was a great way to pick up women. He had one where he scored floor seats to a Chicago Bulls game and was having the time of his life. Another one found him facing off against a spider with the fear coursing through our veins alongside him. Though still, plenty of laughs in that video. But Mr. Shy City also had a lot of heartfelt moments. He would do Christmas giveaways well before Mr. Beast made this a quote-unquote thing and posted a video bringing a gift to a friend's tombstone. These more serious videos were just as entrancing, and through it all, Mr. Shy City's big personality jumped through the screen. Though every video had its own unique flair, whether it was silly, whether it was serious, whether it was somewhere in between, a common theme emerged throughout many of them. Get money, get paid. Mr. Shy City has said multiple times that YouTube changed his life. He was able to make money by doing creative things that he loved to do. Mr. Shy City's story highlights that the most successful creatives are making income in several different ways, consistently opening up doors to new opportunities. This episode's guest realized a lot of creatives don't know this. Tanya Lawson is making it her goal to educate musicians, artists, writers, and more on building their financial empires using SEO as a trusty tool. We're talking about how creatives can earn passive income without paying a ton of money up front, what Tanya has focused on with her websites, and the time she got to clap back at a student that was acting out of turn. Ah, you'll love to see it. I'm Joey Held. This is Good People, Cool Things. And here's my conversation with Tanya Lawson. Can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Tanya Lawson. It's definitely a cargo elevator. And uh, my elevator pitch is I help musicians and creatives ditch the starving artist lifestyle and live the life they deserve. And your background, you've you've been a musician as well. You were I am a musician. Yeah, yes. you, you've been and are currently are a musician uh, and a college professor turned SEO specialist, which I like that tagline there. How did you get into that? Like why that career change? OK, so. I am one of the many graduates who graduated with my doctorate in 2005. And the first year, there were 50 university clarinet positions available. I applied for all of them, and I made the final two for two jobs. And in both cases, they picked someone with more experience. Totally understandable. The next year, there were only five jobs available in the entire U.S. I applied for all five. I got an interview and made the final two for one. And once again, they went with someone who had more experience. And I was like, you know, I need to really start going with plan B because the jobs just aren't there. You know, I'm getting interviews, but I'm competing against hundreds, if not thousands of people for these jobs and these five jobs. So I started building out my own music studio. And that's where I really started getting into business. I've been running a full-time private music studio since 2005. And I, I, I live in one of the few areas where they can actually, we can go into the schools and teach music lessons. And at, some, at one point, the school system decided, we're not sure we're going to continue to allow that. And for me, that was terrifying because that was my, ma- my only source of income. 
So I realized I don't need to keep all of my eggs in one basket. I knew I had a website. I knew I should be able to use it to make money. I just didn't know how. So I took my first ever SEO course. And of course, this this class, it was all about building out niche websites. So that's what I did. I built out my first niche coffee website. And all of a sudden, it started making some money. And I was like, there's got to be a way that I can take this knowledge I have and turn it around to make it work for creatives. Because in the creative space, things are just different. It's not all about just making money. You want to educate. Um, creative minds just think differently. So I started tweaking it and I finally figured it out. And all of a sudden, my music website was making more money than my coffee website. So I started teaching that. I created some courses. I created a membership. And then when COVID hit, a lot of people in my line of work were out of work and frantically struggling. I had was already tech savvy, so transitioning my music studio online was not a problem. And I was the one of the few people who actually got more work during COVID. But I still had more time because I wasn't driving from place to place. So what did I do? I built out a third website, my gardening website. So um, I... I'm just so passionate about helping creatives get their websites found on Google, because if you have a website and it's not getting found on Google, then what's the point of even having? We're going back to when you created the coffee website. Was that always something that you're like, I want to do a website on this? Like after you were taking that class, like how did you come to the decision for, for coffee for that one? It was totally data driven. I went out there and looked and saw what niches were doing well but not so well that I couldn't compete in those niches. So it was it was strictly data-driven picking the coffee. Now, don't get me wrong. I love coffee. I've got a serious coffee addiction. But that was not my reason. That was just the, um, the little happy accident that happened with it. Now, my garden website, I picked that. One, it was data-driven. I knew that that particular niche would do well. But two... I am a passionate gardener, so I knew that that's something that I could get into really long term and do actual pictures from my own garden. I'm not going to go out and buy 20 espresso machines and take a bunch of pictures of them. I just no, I can't afford that, but I can go out into garden, the garden and take pictures of my tomatoes and show you how to prune peppers and show you how to build this new garden bed. Do you think that's been part of the reason for the successes that you at least have had, it, it seems like a pretty strong interest in both. Like, obviously, you're not going out buying 20 espresso machines, but but you do like coffee. I feel like sometimes I'll hear people saying like, oh, yeah, this, you know, real obscure and like, I don't know, carved rims or something is like a big, you know, niche area. And then in my head, I'm like, well, I have absolutely no interest in that. So like, that's not something I'd want to do. Do you think that's been part of the reason why you've been able to to consistently grow? But I, I think having an interest in it has definitely helped. It's definitely made me want to to get it going. When I first started that website, I didn't have a lot of time. And I would literally get up at 5 a.m. every morning and work on my website from 5 to 7, work on writing writing articles for that blog 5 to 7, and then go to work. So definitely having an interest in it. But also just at the time, I had that fear of loss of income and I had to do something. So it was partially fear driven, but 
over time, what sustained it, especially after they decided they weren't going to take the music program out of the school, they were going to keep it in. Then that's where that passion for it, I think, kept it propelling forward. I like it. Have there been any articles on on either one um, or even like through your music that have surprised you at how well they've done? Yes, I have an article on the best clarinet mouthpiece that literally makes me money on Amazon every single week. It's been one of my highest performing articles. Um, I also, the one on the coffee website that surprised me was the Bialetti Bricka versus Mocha Express. And that one got tons of traffic. And there's one more on my personal, on on my my music website turned business website. Um, affiliate marketing without followers. That one has done really well recently because a lot of people are getting into passive income and affiliate marketing and trying to figure out if there's a way to do it without having a big social media following. Lovely. I I do want to get into this, but I'm curious just because I also played clarinet in a band from like, what was it? Fourth grade to junior year of high school, I think. Um, So certainly not as I, my career has not been as, long as yours as yours has been um but i'm curious what's the best mouthpiece well the one that i recommend to my students which is the best affordable mouthpiece is the van doren 5rv layer 13 series lovely i don't think i had that so maybe that's why i clearly was just didn't stick with it i guess that was that must be it that, that must was be it the downfall it's <laughs> just not <laughs> a question i always ask is a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And so how do you earn passive income as a creative? I mean, I think you you kind of just gave an overview of it. But for for someone who maybe hasn't been doing this for 20 years, how can they earn passive income? Oh, there are so many ways. And what I love about it is they don't require a big upfront investment. I'm not going to tell you to buy real estate. I'm not going to tell you to rent out your house on Airbnb. Well, yes, you could do all of those things. I'm a big fan of utilizing your website and SEO to get your website found on Google and start earning passive income. You can do this through affiliate marketing, where you earn a commission on the sale of products you recommend. You can do this through selling your own digital products or physical products if you have dropshipping involved. Um, You can do this through ad revenue. And basically, you write one blog post one time, and it continues to bring in income over time. Like that article, The Best Clarinet Mouthpiece, I wrote that three years ago, and it continues to bring in income for me every single day. I love that. And how are you tracking this? Because I think, I mean, for uh, this is more for people who maybe don't have the back-end knowledge of, of both Google Analytics and like Amazon's um, associates and things like that. What's the explain it like I'm five version of how you can see that correlation? Okay. Well, there is a website called Google Analytics and you go and you set it up with your website and it will show you how many page views you get every single day. You can break it down by how many you get in a day, a week, a month, a year, three years. It's completely customizable. And honestly, A good old-fashioned spreadsheet is a great way to track what you're making. Um, I keep a KPI sheet, which stands for Key Performance Indicators. 
And it quite literally is a Google Sheet that I update every Friday. I updated it right before this podcast recording, actually. (laughs) And I go in and I put down how many website views I got that week for each of my websites. You know, how much I earned through ad revenue, through Amazon, I, you know, how how many views I got, what pages are popular. I just put all that in there once a week. It literally takes me less than five minutes. And it's easy to catch things that way. I ran into a situation where during one of Google's big updates this year, which they did so many, but one of their big updates this year, some of my high-performing pages got de-indexed. So all that meant was I had to go in and re-index them, and then they started performing again. But because I check this every single week instead of once a month or every few months, I caught it very quickly and I didn't miss out on a lot of money. Yeah, I, th- I feel like that was the Im- immediate panic. Uh, I mean, really, anytime Google does any update, there's panic. But like, especially last year, people are like, what's going on? And that's such an easy fix for it. And especially, like you said, if you're checking it, regularly like once you get that process in place it seems like such a big thing to have to undertake but then it's like no it's it's just five minutes a day like you were saying or five minutes a week i guess even even yeah it's five minutes one day a week that's it very very easy very easy and i guess sort of on a you, you kind of alluded to this too is that you don't need both a big following but then also a big like social media presence or anything too which i think i mean personally for me I saw that and I was like stars in my eyes because I'm on many of the social platforms, but I'm very bad at posting to them and, and keeping up with them. And like anytime I go on vacation, I'm like not on social media at all. It's so lovely. The quality of life just goes up. And I think there's a lot of people who are like that. who are like, I don't necessarily want to be posting on social media all the time. So for those sort of anti-social media folks, how can a blog still help bring people to their site? And like, what, what can they be doing to get that traffic? So social media is wonderful. I am on social media and it's a great way to get started when you first start your blog to get views early on. But you really want to focus on search engine optimization, which in simple terms is just what you need to do on your website in each blog post to get them to rank in a Google search so that when people search, your articles come up. Now, this is a long-term game. If you are just starting your website, your blog today, you start implementing it now and you're going to start seeing results in six months to a year. But if you've had a blog for a while, then you can go in and make some tweaks and you can start seeing results a little bit earlier. But basically, you just need to set up every single page on your website in a manner where Google can see it. Google knows exactly what it's about and then they can choose to rank it in the top of their rankings. Is there, you you mentioned the indexing, um, especially if for whatever reason, when you initially post something, like it doesn't get indexed by Google. Is there something else that's like a very simple thing that when you're working with people, you kind of find that a lot of them aren't doing it? Um, yes. When they go to write a blog post or put an article on their website, they write everything they know about the topic. But they forget to think, what are people searching for to find this? They don't think about the user. And all of those Google updates were all about user experience. 
helpful content, keeping the user in mind. And that's why so many niche websites, I'll be honest, including my coffee website, tanked. I'm going through my coffee website, which is set up with really old school SEO, and it used to do really, really well. And I'm updating all of those articles so that they will be just as easy to find on Google now as they once were. But all the websites who were set up with that old school SEO who wrote their articles just to make Google happy, they all tanked. And those people who kept the user intent in mind, who really thought, so for for my best clarinet mouthpiece article, I'm thinking, I'm a parent. I've just been told by a band director that my student needs, uh, my child needs a new clarinet mouthpiece. But they didn't tell me anything else. So I'm going to go on Google and what's the best clarinet mouthpiece? And then in that article, I answer all these other questions. Does the mouthpiece matter? My horn came with a mouthpiece. Why do I need another one? Answer all of those questions. Think about what people are asking because that's the kind of content Google is prioritizing right now. I, I recently was looking at um, sort of like an e evolution of SEO article or something, and it was just wild seeing some of the old, um, you mentioned like the old school SEO, like just some of those tactics of like, my personal favorite was the writing keywords in like white text so that people wouldn't see it while they're reading, but it was having all those keywords in it. And it just, it was like, I don't know, it was like the wild, wild west of the internet back then. It was very entertaining. <laughs> Absolutely. And all of those practices have changed. Google considers that a black hat practice now called keyword stuffing. And that will get your your page de-indexed and off the Google searches faster than you can blink. I'm glad personally, as a as someone who likes when the internet is helpful, as opposed to having to back out of a site that just has a bunch of words on it. Yes. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your your non-SEO work here. I kind of want to start with the college professor um, and, okay. and your teaching moments here because I graduated college a while ago, long, you know, a while, a while back. We don't want to date ourselves on this podcast, but a while back, maybe like 10 moments from like specific classes stick in my head. And one of them was I was taking an evolution of rock class. So like rock music, not geology, uh, which a lot of people seem to think when I told them I'm taking a rock class, I'm like, no, 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 this is more entertaining for me at least. But, um, and our teacher was uh, the jazz teacher at the, at the college, but he, um, the person who was supposed to teach it, I guess like three days before the class started, just abruptly retired. And he's like, I'm out. So this jazz teacher, his, his lesson plan was basically, I'm going to play you a bunch of music and we're going to talk about the artists. And then the, the quizzes were like, name that tune basically. So it was, a great class as someone who was raised on 60s music. I feel like I did very well on that class. It was great. But one of the moments that sticks out, and I learned later that this teacher was kind of a hard ass on like his actual jazz students. But for us, he was like so lighthearted, which was great. Um, but there was a guy in our class who was like very full of himself and would like routinely would try to like talk over the professor about like not related things and was just, you know, just just being loud and obnoxious one class. And the professor just, he was like, hey, I've got a question for you. Why don't you just shut the hell up? And the, whole, the class like erupted in applause. And it's one of my favorite moments. So this is a huge long setup to be like, have you ever had a similar moment where you got to kind of tell a student off that was maybe acting out and it just felt great? 
Oh, I did. Okay. So I taught, um, it was, it was when I was teaching full-time. I do still teach at the university part-time online only, Okay. but, um, it was when I was teaching full-time and I was teaching music appreciation. And I, for whatever reason, I had a bunch of marching band kids in my class and their job, their, their assignment was to create a music video. They were put in groups and they had the, you know, they, they needed to film a music video for the class. Now, there was an alternate assignment to write a six page paper, which would take as much work as putting together this music video, because not everybody likes to work in groups. I gave four weeks from when I assigned this to when it was due. And I get this phone call from the director of marching bands wanting to know why I was penalizing his students and they had to miss marching band to film a music video or be punished with a six page assignment. I was livid. <laughs> I was livid. And the next day in the class, I just went off. I was like, you never do this in my class. And all of the non-music, well, pretty much everybody is just looking at me like, because I'm just kind of a chill, laid back person. But if you make me mad, you are going to see the red hair I was born with come out. <laughs> and I just laid down to the point that this one kid in the back of the class raises his hand and goes, it, it, it was me. And I, I'm really sorry. And apparently they got the same thing from the assistant director of bands. <laughs> uh, that, I'm sure that was so satisfying. <laughs> oh, it was. It felt so good. You mentioned it was a music appreciation course, like discovering new music and songs, but I feel like I've been on an extra kick of it lately. So who's a musician besides you, of course, that more people need to hear? Oh my gosh, that is such a hard question. Classical, non-classical? Whatever you want. Okay, there is a band, and I don't even think they're recording anymore, but they were fabulous. Um, kind of an alternative band called Fleming and John. Okay. And I used to love them. And I have several of their albums. But um, I know that they're not recording. They live in Nashville. Oh, oh, wait. No, I know. Bela Fleck. Okay. <laughs> Hands down, Bela Fleck. I like it. I like it. We'll add. Maybe someday I'll make like a playlist of all the music that's been recommended throughout these episodes. And it'll be... <laughs> That'll be great. And that maybe will encourage people who aren't recording anymore to get back in the studio and be like, look, people demand it. I like it. Okay. So the question I was then going to ask, I always like to ask musicians this because I think it in the moment it's bad, but afterwards it's a great story. What's your worst gig? Okay. Yes. I played a church gig once. It was actually a really high paying gig. And I was brought in to play this like, jazzy clarinet solo as part of their praise and worship music and it was it was in this horrendous key like it was awful but you know I'd worked really hard and I practiced on it and this is one of those gigs where you have to wear headphones so that you can hear all the feedback because it was at this big mega church and they're like zooming in on me I'm on the big screen for this mega church with this televised service and my ears, my headphones go out. I can't hear anything at all. 
So I just pop one of them off and just try to listen to the drummer behind me to play this jazz clarinet solo and this praise and worship music of this televised TV service. And it all went fine. But as far as worst gig, like that's probably my worst performing experience ever. Yeah, that I feel like I would just be I'd melt into a pool of sweat and some cascade off the stage. <laughs> All right, Tanya, you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And we talked about your gardening expertise and your gardening passion. So let us know in these, well, I was going to say in these harsh winter winds, but I guess by the time uh, this airs, it might be a little, little warmer outside. So let us know three vegetables to grow in your backyard garden that won't die. Okay, so the first one is cherry tomatoes. They are so forgiving. No matter what, you know, don't try to grow the big tomatoes. Just pick out a cherry tomato plant. They do really well on patios. They grow in pots. Um, they're just very forgiving. The second one is any kind of hot pepper. Hot peppers are so easy to grow. You can neglect them. You could stick them in the ground, forget to water them, and they will still produce more peppers than you could possibly eat in a season. Don't make my mistake and plant three or four <laughs> Thai red chili peppers because I have not planted Thai red chili peppers in five years because I'm still eating the dried ones. And then finally, basil. Basil grows with such abundance and it's really easy to grow as long as the temperature is good. I love it. As someone who is a very, I would say, inexperienced and even bad gardener, I, cherry tomatoes and basil are the only two things I've really successfully grown. So I co-sign these recommendations. And great shelf life with the peppers, too. Five Absolutely. <laughs> oh, Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was wonderful. If people want to learn more about you, want to work together, where can they find you? Okay, well, my website is tanyalawson.com, and that's Tanya with an O, T-O-N-Y-A. Um, and I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at, at dr.tanyalawson, at Dr. Tanya Lawson. I love it. We'll drop links in the show notes as well. Make it super easy for people awesome. to find you. Thank you again, Tanya. This was great. Thank you. I've had so much fun. And of course, we got to end with a corny joke. You're of perhaps course. one of the few guests excited to hear this. Usually people are caught off guard. I love bad jokes. What do you call a factory that makes good products? I don't know. A satisfactory. <laughs> Get after it today, people. That's the best dad joke ever. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Ooh.